We'll grab a Bible and turn to Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 3. Uh, We're going to be in verses 23 through 38 today. I've heard it said that the Holy Spirit attended the preaching of Billy Graham so often so much that Billy Graham could read the phone book and people would come to faith in Christ. But I don't know if he ever read the genealogy of Jesus Christ before he preached. Uh, So... Why am I doing this? Why would I subject you to this and now in two services subject myself to the same torture of reading all these names? Well, here's the reason why. The Bible says that all scriptures God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so we believe that all of the scriptures God breathed. And so there is something in here for us even today. There are a lot of names in here. Rest easy, I'm not going to cover every name in the sermon, but I am going to try to read every, every name, and uh, I'll show you, if you don't know how to pronounce a name, just fake it. <laughs> no. no, but in all honesty, this is God's Word, and there's something significant for us to learn here this morning. So hear God's Word this morning, Luke chapter 3, verse 23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Maphet, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maoth, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Joseph, the son of Jodah, the son of Joanan, the son of Risa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adi, the son of Kosum, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Mathet, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Melia, the son of Mena, the son of Matatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Selah, the son of Nashon, the son of Amminadab, the son of Admon, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Surg, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you tell us that all scriptures God breathed and is useful. May your Holy Spirit open our eyes to see how useful your word is even in an impressive family tree. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Someone gave me this free gift a couple years ago. What is it? It's a 30 millimeter A10 round shell casing. I'm told that this was fired out of an A-10 Thunderbolt Warthog. It's an actual military round. And so they cut off part of the casing where you can use it to 
go camping and drink your beverage of choice. Why did they give this to me? Well, they gave it to me because they know I have an appreciation of, of firearms. I appreciate And then also it's got this cool rattlesnake on it that says, don't tread on me. I like that. But along with this shell casing came a certificate of authenticity. And it was authenticating the fact that this was a real shell casing from a real round that had been fired in a military airplane. Why is that important? My friend was very proud to show me they had a certificate of authenticity. Because there are a lot of scams going on today. This weekend we had some friends visiting from Georgia. And every time one of our cell phones would ring and we didn't recognize the cell phone number, do you know what we would say? Ah, it must be somebody trying to sell me uh, another extended warranty on my Honda Civic. Even though it's a 2004 model with 241,000 miles, I don't think they want to give me another warranty on that. Well, there are a lot of scams going on this day and age. How many of you, by a show of hands, have ever had your identity stolen? Anyone in this? Yes, several of us in this sanctuary have had our identity stolen. We live in a world that is full of scams, fake news, infomercials, and fraudulent activity. So it's only natural that when you live in a world full of so many fakes and scams and people trying to hoodoo you, it's only natural that sometimes that skepticism can bleed over into one's religion. Sometimes that skepticism can kind of bleed over in our relationship with Jesus Christ. And so what does the genealogy of Jesus Christ have to offer you and me this morning? Something simple. This genealogy is like a certificate of authenticity about Jesus' identity. This genealogy is like a certificate of authenticity validating the historical validity and authenticity of Jesus' identity. You see, the Jewish people were very, very meticulous about writing down their family tree. They would never have to go to the website Ancestry.com. They take far more great pleasure and delight and pride in their family heritage. One of the reasons being is because that was important in the distribution of land. If you remember, uh, in the Old Testament, it got distributed land according to the 12 tribes. And you could lose your land, then you had to get back your land, so forth. So that was one of the reasons that family trees were very significant to the Jewish people and the nation of Israel. We need to know our family tree so we know which plot of land belongs to you and which plot belongs to me in the promised land. There was another reason. There were prophecies. There were prophecies that were told that would point forward to the Messiah that was to come. So this morning, I want us to focus in on three names in this genealogy. Three names that are extremely significant. All the names are significant, although there are some things we don't know about some of these names. In fact, there are some names we don't know anything about them. 
But there are three names in particular I want us to focus on today and what they tell us about the identity of Jesus Christ. The first name is in verse 31. The son of David. The son of David. What does that tell us about Jesus' identity? Jesus is the messianic king. Jesus is the messianic king. You see, there were prophecies in the Old Testament that pointed forward to the fact that the, that the Messiah would come through the house and the lineage of David. And so if Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah, then one of the, the tests we before Jesus is to see if he's actually from uh, Davidic descent. Now one thing I'd forgotten about that I was reminded of this week in my studies, which is very, very important for Jesus. Joseph and Mary both were of Davidic descent. Why is that important? Well, for those that didn't believe in Jesus as the Messiah, they didn't believe in uh, Jesus' virgin birth, it'd be very significant to know that if Joseph was Jesus's, he would have Davidic descent through Joseph. But as people come on the other side of their skepticism into faith in Jesus Christ, and they realize that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, that Joseph was only posed as Jesus's father, as it says here in verse 23, then we need to know that Jesus just coming through Mary and being conceived by the Holy Spirit is still of Davidic descent. Why is that significant? Because the Messiah was to come through David's line. And what we see preserved here is a certificate of authenticity about Jesus' identity. Jesus is a son of David, which means Jesus is the Messianic King. But one little tidbit I found interesting is that it says here that Jesus began his ministry, verse 23, when he was about 30 years of age. That was also the age that, Jesus, uh, that King David took uh, reign of his throne. That would also have been the time when the Levites could have begun serving in the temple. And so there are a lot of plays here, a lot of beautiful connections between the person of Christ and the work of Christ as our high priest and as our great king. So why is this significant that Jesus is the messianic king? Well, here's the deal. If he's the king, then we need to submit. We need to submit to him. So we need to take a look at our own lives and see, are we bending our knee in obedience to King Jesus? I received an email yesterday about the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church that was signed by eight ministers. And it was sent out, I'm assuming, I've been told, to the entire denomination. For those of you that just joined the church, I don't want to be okay? But we need to be realistic about where we are as a denomination. In 2007, there was a vision committee that was put together by our General Synod that researched our general synod, researched our denomination, and took a look at where we were. And it said this about us, that we were addicted to niceness, that we were too complacent about mediocrity, and that we were not, that we needed to make some great changes. And since that time, the membership of our denomination has dwindled from 34,000 down to 20, well, less than 23,000. In case numbers aren't your big thing, that's in the wrong direction. 
And so as a denomination, we need to repent. We need to bend our knee to King Jesus because I'm persuaded that though we have a commitment in the past as a denomination to the free offer of the gospel, we have gotten lazy, complacent, or cowardly in our equipping people for the work of an evangelist. And we need to repent. And we need to repent now. In our personal life, as we are forming the budget for 2021, are you bending your knee to King finances? Are you the type of person that you're learning how to set aside a tithe to give to the Lord Jesus and the work of his kingdom? For those of us that are already tithing, are we challenged by God to grow in our commitment to giving to Christ and his kingdom? Not only through our tithe, but through our, our talents and our time. As a family, are you demonstrating that the most important time on your calendar is worship. Maybe the way you bend your knee to Jesus as we exit 2020 and enter into 2021 is that each week as a family that you would carve out your calendar and you would write down worship on Sunday morning. As Stephen Covey says, we don't need to prioritize our schedule. Rather, we need to schedule our priorities. Or what about in the political climate we're in? No matter who gets elected, Jesus is still king. Let me say this as to you that are parents and to, your, to our students. This genealogy of Jesus Christ is, is to give us a certificate of authenticity. And so I want to encourage those of you as students that it's only natural as you get older that you learn that your parents aren't perfect. <laughs> And it's only natural for you to begin to ask questions, and sometimes very, very difficult questions for your parents to answer. Sometimes very difficult questions for uh, our director of youth and family ministries to answer. Patrick Darty, he's more than just a youth pastor. You know that? It's even difficult for your pastor to answer our elders. But we want you to know as students that you can come ask us those difficult questions. And we want to walk alongside you as you ask those questions. Do you know why? Because we're not afraid of those questions. And we want you to know that this church is a part of your covenant body, your covenant kids. We want to walk alongside you when you wrestle with those questions. Because we're convinced, come on the other side of those questions, you're going to have more confidence about your faith, what you believe about Jesus, and why you believe about him. And so we want to investigate the scriptures together so that our faith will be strengthened as a church. There's a story that's told, one of my favorite stories about Stalin's reign, where there was a, a huge statue of Stalin and a, an elderly woman was standing before the statue just kind of looking up at it. One of the soldiers said to her, the old elderly lady in a very harsh tone, Babushka, 
Will you bow and kiss Stalin's feet? How I wish I had her faith and her certainty of her faith when she turned to the military soldier and she said, ask this question, has Stalin died, resurrected from the grave and forgiven me of my sins? On that day, I will kiss Stalin's feet. I don't know how and when and where that woman heard the gospel. But I'm sure that Luke's gospel helped provide certainty about what she believed about Jesus. And what she was convinced of is that Jesus is the king. And one of the ways that we know that is through this genealogy that he was a son of David. Which brings us to the second name I want us to take a look at this morning. Is in verse 34. The son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, and the son of Abraham. The son of Abraham. What does that name matter? Well, it proves to us that Jesus is the Savior to all nations. If we turn back to Genesis chapter 15, there's a very significant event that happens in Genesis 15. God makes a covenant with Abraham. And what happens there in Genesis 15 is that uh, Abraham prepares the, the animal sacrifice the covenant ceremony. And what would normally happen in a covenant ceremony is that the animals would be, would be killed and would be divided. So half the animal would be, carcass would be here, half the animal carcass here, and then after making the covenant agreement, the two parties would walk between the dead animal carcass, symbolizing and signifying to God that either one of them broke their covenant agreement, that may God do to us what, what we have done to these animals. In other words, may he judge us harshly and punish us harshly. But what happens in Genesis chapter 15, we this at Wednesday night a couple weeks ago. Here's what happens. Abraham prepares the sacrifices and he waits on God. And right about the time, Abraham begins to fall asleep. God comes down in fire and consumes the sacrifice. What does that mean? God is saying, This covenant is not dependent upon you, Abraham. This covenant is 100% completely dependent upon me. And what was that covenant? It was a covenant of grace that God would save his people. It was an unconditional covenant because the, the effectiveness and the successfulness of that covenant was not dependent upon Abraham in any way, shape, or form. Because God alone is the one that passed between the pieces. So the the covenant rests solely and completely upon God's shoulders. And when you couple that covenant with what the promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, we see how great the covenant agreement is when he says, In you, Abraham, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. What is he saying? I'm the savior of the world. I'm the savior of the nations. Jews and Gentiles alike. There's a gentleman by the name of Tony Campolo 
told a story years ago that I really appreciate. Yeah. In Tony's later years, I haven't agreed with him theologically or politically or on many things, but he shares a story about an event that happened in his life that I think is pertinent to us understanding Jesus being the son of Abraham and thus the Savior to all the nations. Tony shares a story that years ago he flew in. He was speaking at a, at a conference, and if you've ever experienced that much jet lag, he woke up wired at about 3 a.m. He was hungry. He made his way out of his hotel, and he was looking for a car, and he couldn't find one, so he had to kind of go down a backside of a, of a side street, and he found this greasy little spoon diner at 3 o'clock in the morning. And Tony shares the story. He walks into the diner, and the place looks nasty and filthy. And the guy who owns the place is named Harry. He walks out. He's, he said, I don't know if he was Harry. He was covered in an apron, but the apron was filled with grease. And Harry handed Tony a, a dirty, a laminated menu that looked like it had about two inches of grease on it. And Tony said, I'll just take a cup of coffee and a donut. And Harry poured the coffee, and then Harry wiped his dirty hand on his greasy apron and grabbed the donut with his bare hand and put it on a plate. Tony said he hated that. Tony said as he sat there at 3 o'clock in the morning, miserable, hungry, nine prostitutes walked into the diner. And Tony said it made him feel very uncomfortable. And they sat down right beside him. And the prostitute that sat right down beside him spoke up to the other girls and she said, well, tomorrow is my birthday. I'm going to turn 39 tomorrow. One of the other cohorts said, so what? What do you expect me to do about it? Why should I care? And the girl said, well, you don't have to be rude about it. I, it just came to my mind. It's not like I'm expecting a birthday party or anything. I, I've never had one in my life. A few moments later, the prostitutes left the diner. Tony said he, he overheard that and just kind of weighed heavy on him. And he looked at Harry and he said, do you know those girls? And by that time, Harry's wife had come out of the back of the kitchen. Harry's wife spoke up and said, yeah, we know those girls. He said, well, that girl beside of me that spoke up about her birthday, do you know her? And she said, oh, yeah, that's Agnes. She said, Agnes is a sweet lady. She's kind. And don't, don't let it put you off what she does for a living. Tony said, I overheard that she's never had a birthday party. I was wondering if tomorrow we could have a birthday party for her here. Well, Harry and his wife got all excited. Said, yeah, well, absolutely we can do that. Tony said, you don't mind if I go and buy some streamers and hang them up? And they said, no, not at all. Tony said, well, I'd like to get her a cake. And Harry said, well, I'll take care of the cake. Tony said he looked at his greasy apron and thought, I don't know that you should be taking care of the cake. But okay, Harry, you take care of the cake. And so the next morning, Tony came back to that diner at about 2.30 in the morning. He, he hung up streamers everywhere in the, in the diner and had happy birthday, Agnes. And he said apparently that the word spread throughout all Honolulu and every prostitute in Honolulu came to the diner that day, that early in that morning. And so he coached them all that when Agnes walked in, they were going to scream happy birthday to Agnes. So they were sitting there waiting for them to come. And sure enough, at 3.30 a.m., Agnes and her friends walk in the door, and everybody jumps up and claps and says, Happy birthday, Agnes. 
And Tony says, Agnes froze. Tony brought a cake with candles burning before Agnes and said, Happy birthday, Agnes. Agnes was so stunned she couldn't blow out the candles. And so Harry came from behind the, the counter and blew out the candles. Agnes said, I've never had a birthday cake before in my life. Do we have to cut it? Tony said, no, it's your cake. She said, could I take this to my mom and show this cake to my mom? Tony said, if you want, you can. She said, well, mom just lives two blocks down the street. I'll, I'll be back. And so Agnes left the diner with her cake. And Tony says he doesn't know why he felt led to do this, but he began praying. He said, in hindsight, it probably wasn't the wisest thing to do because you got a Christian sociologist in the middle of a diner full of prostitutes. But he began praying. I prayed that God would help her see how much Jesus loves her, that God would help Agnes see how God can cleanse her and can change her from all the dirty things she's done or all the th dirty things that's been done to her. And when he said amen, he said, Tony says that Harry spoke up and said, Tony, I knew you were more than just a sociologist. I knew you were a preacher. And he said, and he said what kind of church do you go to? I mean, what kind of church throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3 a.m. in the morning? Tony said, that's the kind of church I go to. The kind of church that loves Jesus and loves the world enough that will throw birthday parties for prostitutes at 3 a.m. in the morning. Friends, here's what I know. We may not throw birthday parties for prostitutes at 3 a.m. in the morning. But we serve a living Savior that came to change people that even are prostitutes at 3 a.m. in the morning. And when God changes them, we better throw a party. And whenever anybody comes into this church that's been changed by Christ and people begin to throw up who they were in junior high or high school or college, we need to go, uh-uh-uh-uh-uh. Jesus said no one can come to me unless he be born again. And we celebrate the fact that they've been born again. And if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. And that the Apostle Paul says that those that are truly in Christ, those that are truly sons of Abraham, are those who have believed in Jesus Christ. For the Apostle Paul says, if we believe in Jesus, it will be credited to us as righteousness. Why is it important for us to see Jesus' identity as authentic? Because then, maybe then, we'll be convinced he really is the Savior of the world. Red and yellow, black and white, they are all precious in his sight. Rich and poor, dumb, depraved, distinguished, doesn't matter. God's grace 
can extend to all. And so what I'm hoping we see throughout Luke's gospel is that we really do serve a Savior that is the Savior of the nations. Do you know where Christianity is strongest today? It's in the southern hemisphere of the world. That's changed in the last 15 to 20 years. There was a time when we used to send missionaries to the southern hemisphere of the world. But do you know what's happening now? They're beginning to send missionaries back to us. And we need them. Jesus is the son of David because... And that proves to us he's the messianic king. Jesus is the son of Abraham, which proves he is the savior of the nations. And he is the son of Adam. He is the son of God, which proves that Jesus truly is God. We see that in verse 38. The son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, and the son of God. Why is that important? Well, when Adam was created by God, he was chosen to be our representative. And so wherever he succeeded, we would succeed. Wherever he failed, we would fail. And so we know, according to the Apostle Paul, that certainly Adam was truly a, um, a living being. But the Apostle Paul says that the last Adam, which is Jesus Christ, will come and be a life-giving spirit. And so we know that we all are sinful in two ways. On one sense, we're sinful because of the original sin we've inherited from Adam. It's the the corrupt nature that we're born with, and out of this pool of depravity in our heart flows all the ripple effects of that depraved nature into our thought life, into our words, into our actions, and our desires, and our motivations. So why is it important that we understand that Jesus is the Son of God, that He comes fully God, fully man, without sin, representing us, perfectly obedient, and thus able to offer himself as a spotless substitute in our place upon the cross. That is why it's important to know that Jesus is God and the Son of God, that he's come to represent us in our place. One of the things I'm most excited about happening right now in the life of our church, one of the most exciting things is there are a couple of people that started a Bible study with some of their friends that were curious about the Christian faith. It's one of our students, actually, in our youth ministry. Started it with her friends. And they're going through John's gospel together. And they're investigating the claims of Christ. That is what we need to be about here at the Bartow ARP Church. That's what our denomination needs to be, be about. We need to be a, a, a church that is known as a place where those that have questions can come get answers. We need to be known as a place that those that have some doubts and those that have some discouragements can come here, be encouraged, and we will walk alongside them and see how Jesus is the answer to all their questions and how the Bible answers their questions. That's the story of Lee Strobel. He wrote a famous work called The Case for Christ. He worked for the Chicago Tribune for many years as an investigative journalist. And when his wife came to faith in Christ, he hated that fact. And so Lee tried to investigate the claims of Christ to try to disprove them. And he did it for years and he had added up on on one sheet of paper all the, the reasons for why he should believe in 
The fact that Jesus is a real person, why he should believe in the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he said, after years and years of investigating, he said there was no, there was no doubt that Jesus was a real person that lived and that died. And when it came to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he said this, there was so much proof for the resurrection of Jesus Christ that it would have required more faith of him not to believe in Jesus than to believe in Jesus. And that is precisely what Luke's gospel invites us to do. To come like an investigative journalist. And take a look. And in turn, with every turn of the page, what Luke says from Jesus' birth and infancy to his genealogy and so forth is one certificate of authenticity after another that Jesus is who he truly says. He is. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are king. Lord Jesus, you are the only Savior. And Lord Jesus, you are God. For those that don't believe today, nag and annoy them with curiosity to investigate further. And Father, for those of us that do know and believe, fill us to the brim with certainty. And as we go through different twists and turns and dips throughout the seasons and the chapters of our life, help us to know that we have a friend in you who's been tempted and tried in every way that we have been, yet without sin. It's in Jesus Christ, our Lord's name we pray. Amen.